If I have a 10% market share and my share of impressions in against my audience is 2%, you can expect that your share of market is going to decline versus the opposite, right? If you have a share of voice and way more impressions and engagement in your category, and it's 15% and your market share is 10%, chances are you're gonna grow your market share. It's about adding all of those things up. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. It's a hot summer in Tennessee where I am recording. We've had a couple of weeks off, so it's good to be back. I wanted to welcome today Carolyn Walker to the show. Carolyn, I always ask our guests to give a little intro of your yourself and your work for the audience that uh, doesn't know you yet. Welcome. Thank you. So nice to be on the show. I am the CEO and managing partner of Response Marketing. We are a hybrid agency that is equal parts brand consultancy and creative execution agency. And I've been in the branding and marketing space for over 35 years, working on both B2B and B2C brands. I've been leading response for the last 15 years. I have a little bit of an interesting story that I call myself the accidental entrepreneur. I didn't mean to own an agency was an intentional thing, but I had left my prior uh, organization and started as a freelancer and then worked my way (laughs) into a leadership role and then bought the original guys out in 2009. So uh, a little bit of a kind of non-traditional way to get to owning an agency. And we work with brands at Response Marketing. We work with brands, both, like I said, on the B2B and B2C side, and we help them punch above their weight with things like helping them with brand portfolio strategy and management. We do lots of brand building activity in terms of starting brands from scratch or helping reposition brands, helping promote brands, and then also balancing that with performance marketing and activation. When I talk about brand portfolio strategy, it really is about how to optimize your portfolio of brands to meet corporate goals. Many organizations, we find them in uh, themselves in places where they went through a series of acquisitions or lots of acquisitions over the years, and now they have a bloated portfolio and they don't really know what to do. So we help them out there. And then on the performance and brand marketing side, the performance marketing really is about how do we build short-term sales? And then the brand marketing side is really about how do we ensure that long-term growth and uh, ensuring success and future cash flow with with branding. And it's not about one or the other. It's about what's the balance of both for for most businesses. Yeah. That balance comes, you know, strategically and of course, then on the budget side and, and then what channels. So I think we started the agency way back in the knots. Talk about a period of just outrageous change in the number of possible channels, top to bottom and, and brand management and communication, like corporate Communication wasn't even a thing. So you have this like development over that same period of Marcom people, which wasn't even a thing because you used to just put out a press release and now it's, wait, which channels do we focus on? Where do we need to be? How do we stay consistent? Oh, we've got a portfolio of different brands. What do we keep? What do we get rid of? I mean, it's hard from the consulting side and agency side to kind of like, wow, what is the process to even make sense of this from the beginning? I'm sure you run into that all the time. Yeah, we do. And I would say, like I said, on the brand portfolio strategy and management side, 
we lean into a lot of thinking from David Acker and the like, and they talk about, it's all about fewer, stronger global brands, right? So if you have so many brands in your portfolio that they're competing with each other or that they're confusing internally and externally, like which one is the most appropriate for what? Or you've got brands in your portfolio that could have incredible strength, but they don't have the resources behind them to, to do that. Or you have so many brands in your portfolio that it's taking strength away from the ones that could be power brands. So yeah, it could be a, a real a mess at times. And I think it's one of those things that most B2B companies don't think about in advance of their acquisition strategy. And when it, there's a really a beautiful thing that happens when you have an acquisition strategy in place and you know what your plan is in terms of your portfolio. Where do they fit? Are they a power brand? Does that acquisition become a product brand? Does it get demoted? And when you have a strategy and a plan like going into acquisition, it's much better. But I think, like I said, most companies find themselves in a place like after it's all happened saying, what do we do now? And it's not about, I said, fewer, stronger global brands. It's not about one brand. It's about what's the minimum number of brands that make sense to support the business strategy and the growth plan. I like the tagline is that you're helping people, what are helping brands who have punch above their weight. And that makes me think, how do you weigh them to know where to start? What is above weight and how do you know the difference? Yeah, well, I think the way we look at it is that we're working with brands that are not complacent. They're not complacent with the status quo. They want to do more or be more than they currently are. And so to me, that's about, those are brands with ambition. Those that are maybe in number one or number two place, and they're just, they're fine, or they're not. Maybe they're in fifth or sixth place or 10th place, and they're fine with that. That's, they, to us, they don't have ambition. We want to be with those brands that want to grow or do more and be more than they currently are. And so that's how we evaluate it. And then from an agency perspective and consultant perspective, it's about finding out what's going on, right? So earning a seat at the table and understanding what's happening, the dynamics inside the organization and what their plans are so that then we can help guide them to what's the right solution for that. And in as being a consultant agency yourself is it's all different. The same answer doesn't work for everyone. So it's about gaining intimacy with the, the client and understanding their business and helping them out. I mean, I can never think that I ever talked to any marketing leader or team who said, hey, we've just got so many people and we need more things for them to do. Oh, and we're overfunded on budget. It's just doesn't happen, right? Like never every happens. single day I talk to another marketing leader is like, we're a small team. We have to cover a lot of ground. We can't do this internally. It's just too many things. We know we need to, in our case, it's a beat. we know we need to be in podcasting and which is now audio video because you can't escape YouTube, the monster running you over ever. And then, oh, but then we need to snippet all these things into what about Snapchat and Reels and TikTok and other audio strategy and, oh, we have webinars and it's, it's just overwhelming. And you go, okay, we've got that brand alignment that we need to do because there's consistent messaging across all that necessary. Then we're thinking about the man gen. And then also, well, how about that performance thing? And meanwhile, all the way down at the bottom of the sales funnels, like our, my ilk of, of salespeople were like, hey, y'all, can we drum up some interest in, in doing some calls here that are not just the old school Marketing qualified lead, somebody went to a webinar, like it's not like that anymore. No, it's not. It is confusing. I think the 
the thing to me that I've seen happen, and let's go, if you go back like 10 years right now, when digital starts to explode and marketing market marketers and marketing budgets start to shift to digital because it's so trackable and measurable and budgets go into what I would call performance. And it's been the the way of kind of the world. And I think you're talking about a lot of, there's so many tactical things you can do in the digital space and it's finding those ones that are right for you and work for you. But I feel like over the last 10 years, it's almost, the pendulum has swung almost too far towards performance and activation and to the detriment of brand, right? And yes, activation works. It just works in a very short-term format. You spike the sales or you spike the interest and engagement, and then it tails off pretty quickly. And it just keeps doing that. Versus when you have a brand campaign in play too, you really are setting yourselves up to ensure, like I said, the success of the company long-term because it's that long-term awareness, not even just awareness, salience, brand salience that you're building over time with those that audience that's not in market right now. It's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of B2B clients and customers to totally wrap their heads around and also to gain the buy-in from like the CFO, the people who manage the money, because it's so much easier to quantify on the, the digital and the performance star side and much harder to quantify it on the brand side. And in fact, I know LinkedIn has done some research that shows that most B2B marketers are only measuring things for less than four months. Like they're not looking out farther. And so they don't understand. They're not getting the full picture to realize what's happening. And so feel the conversations are starting to happen and the, maybe this pendulum is starting to shift back because there's more there's more and more data out there that's proving that when run brand with performance, you're actually getting a lift on your performance side, but up, up to 6X lift on your performance side versus just running activation alone. So I feel like the conversations are starting to shift, but it's still not an easy one to have. And I really wish that more CMOs like, took interest in it and we're thinking about it more because I do think that it, you're making your lives a lot harder, your, your jobs a lot harder by not doing both and thinking about both and investing. Yeah. What's the, it was Gartner or somebody said it was 5% of the sort of targets out there are actively shopping right now. And so without the demand gen and, and awareness and just top of mindness that comes from these plays, you won't be in their head at the eventual time that somebody actually wants something and goes, I need something to glean onto and Google in the time that I need it. And we're all, we've spent so much time sort of data managed marketing and all these things attacking these areas that are people who want it right now. What about people who are going to want it later, which is 90 X percent? Yeah, hundred percent. We've seen that research too. They're calling it the ninety-five-five rule. That you know, and not that it's a hard and fast rule, but it's pretty directionally right, right? That a huge portion of your audience is out of market at any given time, and only five percent are in market. Right, and let's all fight about the five, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And forgetting about the ninety-five who eventually might convert to to an actual customer, and but if they don't know about you ever, or know what you stand for, or why you exist, or what you have to offer, you're, you don't have a shot at them at all. Probably see this. So you have an interesting place of having to be like. We got to be awesome marketers because we're a marketing agency and it's so easy to not apply those things and be like, trust us, we're experts, like, don't worry about ours. But it's, I mean, 
for an agency who provides specialized services in the instance that someone finally needs it in a crowded space. I mean, it's a perfect microcosm of that thing. I know for us, like we know people want, B2B marketers want to be in the podcast realm, but you're talking about two years later of finally being like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm ready now. (laughs) And that happens so much for big businesses also. And I think we get hamstrung by this quarterly and annual budgeting dilemma of, you know, did it work or not? Well, it might work two years from now. And I have personally examples of that where the two years of touch points gets you the big account, but nobody even prices or thinks about or budgets their marketing from that standpoint, especially at a big company. Yeah, a hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And I think all we can do is guide ourselves and our clients as to what people who even know, who know a lot more than I do about the subject are advising. And Les Binet and Peter Field, you probably heard those names before. They're the masters of, and, and grandfathers, I would say, of marketing effectiveness and advertising effectiveness. And they suggest that in the B2C world, the split between brand and activation in the B2C world is about 60% brand, 40% activation in B2C. And it's more like 50-50 in B2B. And so you've got to think of marketing and advertising as an investment, not an expense, and say, okay, if my budget for the year is whatever it might be, I want to take half of that and do brand building activities. And I'm not just talking about advertising brand building. I'm talking about, okay, what are our channels that we want to use to build brand? And I would argue that PR is a huge brand builder. It's about keeping your name and your awareness out there. So you're PR budget should be part of, okay, that's brand. What are the content pieces that we're creating, putting out there? What are we doing to keep our site fresh and interesting and relevant and a great example of our digital footprint? There are things that we can do. It doesn't have to all be all paid. It's paid, earned, owned, and I would argue internal as well, right? So what are all the channels available to us to build brand? And then also, what are all the channels available to us to activate against? Again, it's not all paid, but you have to have a presence. And so think it's like a shift in thinking about, okay, what's the total budget instead of saying, oh, our total budget is this. And what's the most most effective based on the metrics that I'm getting? Even how am I getting metrics? The thing is like, now I think you are seeing some excellent sort of technological trickle down for attribution relative to brands. So like we can, okay, you know, in the best non-creepy way that we know how we can try to track anybody that interacted with our brand in any sense, and then ultimately understand where and how they ended up in the funnel. Now, of course, nobody likes to hear about that. I pixeled you two and a half years ago and tracked you around the internet forever and showed you ads and got you on my podcast and what I mean, but how else would you do it? You know, like it's that weird balance. Yeah, it is a balance. And I think there's certain metrics and trackability, obviously, like we're talking about on the short term side and with the activation stuff is very easy. On the long term and more brand side, you know, there are things that you can put in place really that are very easy. Even if you're a small company, you can do a brand awareness, brand favorability, brand availability, brand consideration survey out to your, you could put out to your customers, but you could extend it out to what category are you competing in and who are those people very easily and say, okay, we start, this is our base. We have this 20% top of mind awareness. And then you repeat it in six months or nine months, a year, and to see if you're making movement. And it's not that difficult. It just takes time. And like I said earlier, we know that most marketers are not willing to put the time in because they're getting 
pressure to to win the game, the short term game, and budgets get moved and, and rejiggered. But I think those who can stand firm and make a case that it is an investment and it's an investment that is going to pay off in terms of value, brand value, and and it has an effect on your value from your the brand as an asset. I think it starts to perk up the ears of some of the CFOs or some people who are holding the purse strings. It's just not easy. And I know and you're laughing because I know it's well, not it's easy. Just, um, it's simple, not easy. Uh, it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also easy to be overwhelmed. It's like, I know things about marketing. I know things about sales. I know things about revenue, but which the hell things do I even do? I think it's like almost like analysis choice paralysis. And that's where I, I'd imagine a partner can come in. Why well, I, I know this to be true and go stop doing those wasteful things because in our experience, it doesn't show value in the way that you think it might. I love that you dialed in a little bit on, on PR because that's an old word and old channel and everybody in B2B has probably had the experience. Yeah. I don't know. I spent 25 grand a month with my PR agency and I'm not really sure what happened to it. You know, but I, I got a press release every month or there's nothing formulaic anymore in the sense that we have so many tools, but you can't run the playbook in the easy way because there's so many tools. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's weeding through all of that. And I think, listen, there are there is some research out there, too, that from IPA that shows that you're there is a correlation between share of voice and share of market. So the more, right, the higher your share of voice, the higher your share of market. And if you want to grow your business, your share of voice should be higher than your share of market. And so- Define that for people that don't know share of voice because, you know, it's, it's marketing lingo almost. And what does that mean? So basically, when you look at the category that you're in and who's advertising and or marketing pub PR in that category, we're looking at what's your share of the impressions against your audience, essentially, right? So if I have a 10% market share and my share of impressions in against my audience is 2%, you can expect that your share of market is going to decline versus the opposite, right? If you have a share of voice and, and way more impressions and engagement in your category, and it's 15% and your market share is 10%, chances are you're going to grow your market share. It's about adding all of those things up, right? Impressions from uh, PR, impressions from your advertising, impressions from your site, like all of that together, right? And looking at what's happening on the competitive side so you understand what is my share, it's a percent of the total, right? And your audience is bombarded every day as, with messages from not only yourself, but competitors. Like, how am I breaking through? And impressions is one thing. I think you mentioned the creative side. That's the other piece of it, right? You can have creative out there that's not good. And well, well maybe your share of voice is strong or you're trying to increase it, but if the creative is bad. No, I was going to say, I think of the, in small business context, agency context, we talk about just results, right? So I think the worst thing we can do is just set things on autopilot and kind of just do nothing. And I think we used to call that, well, what about engagement with the audience? And it's not enough to just push content out there in that sort of HubSpot-y inbound marketing just explosion. Like that worked early because nobody else was doing it. You know, when you learn the playbook and you saturate, then you move, you're savvy about it. But activity does matter. And I'll talk to a lot of people in smaller B2B companies, agencies, consultancies like that. Just, are you just, 
effectively sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, even though that doesn't happen anymore, but that's the way it used to be. Like I would hang out a shingle and just hang out in my office and be like, oh, people will call me. And it's, it was never right. And it's still not right. And the fact of that meaningful activity and impressions and interactions, you put the effort together to specifically come and be on podcasts and people want to do that. People want to make their own podcast. It's still a lot of work. <laughs> and I think that's the part that gets lost. Stop being busy and start being effective, maybe. Well, I think, listen, there's a couple pieces of advice I have for that. One is don't be afraid to partner with people who know better than you, right? Partner with the experts. And so, because it, it can be very overwhelming, very quickly in terms of what to do. And the other thing I'd say is it goes back to your appetite for what you want to do in the funnel in terms of brand building and performance. There are certain tactical things that are better for brand building and other things that are better for performance. And so it starts to maybe narrow your choices. The other thing that I would say too is I'm a believer that it's better to cast a wide net and then optimize to the things that work, right? And I think that there's a mistake I think a lot of us make is that we think we already know and so we optimize early, like we say, okay, we're not going to be in these things because we, we know that's not going to work or we know that person's not there. But in reality, it might not be that. And so I feel like that's a common mistake to narrow too early and not get the best effect of let's go wide, let's go maybe less expensive, especially from a media perspective, cast a wider net and optimize to the things that actually work. And listen, you're right too, David. I think it's what's available to us changes all the time. And so there's all, sometimes people get distracted by the bright new shiny object too. We're recording this on the, what, three days ago, threads dropped and it has a hundred million users. But you and I look at it and I'm like, well, this feels like hypish, not unlike everybody had to be on Clubhouse and not. What marketers are being like, oh, you got to be on Clubhouse. It's not, right? And well, I'm one of those 100 million and I went in and grabbed my username and never logged in again. And I think that happens from brand context too. And it's like a hurry up and wait, flood the zone, but then do nothing. And so I don't even know if that channel would have worked. <laughs> we have to be everywhere at the same time. And But I think you're right that you can tactically do the work of just trying to understand if we, you can't spread too thin. But you do need to think about what's that footprint look like. And almost the marketing analyst part gets lost because there's just a lot of rote work to you know, even understand here's our footprint and continue to track and do actual real things with the data, not just the accidental integration that happened between the 16 different things we have in our MarTech stack that eventually fell into a CRM that nobody checks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're making a really good point. And I think that's very true. And I think that there's this maybe tendency to dip your toe into things and sometimes not really take a full effort at something and then say it doesn't work. And I think way too many people do that. And some of the thinking that comes out of the LinkedIn B2B Institute is about betting on big ideas, betting on big contrarian ideas. And I do think that sometimes it takes that in order to see if something really does work for you. I'll tell you a quick story about a podcast, actually. Podcasting 
became super popular back when cereal, like cereal went crazy, right? And everyone was like, oh my God, cereal, I have to listen to cereal. And I was the same. I became completely engrossed in cereal. I was like, I could not believe how engaging it was for an audio program. And so I became obsessed with podcasting. I just was like ingesting everything from cereal to This American Life to Invisibilia, like you name it. I was like listening to it. And a couple of years go by and one of our clients, McAfee, the security, digital security company, we knew that their problem in terms of digital security is that people were so apathetic about it. They want to set it and forget it, didn't really want to think about it. But at the same time, exactly, set and forget it. We don't want to like, just tell me we're getting MQLs from it. People want to set it and forget it. They didn't want to think about it. But at the same time, the number one thing you can do as a consumer is to have awareness and education about what the threats are but they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. And we did lots of marketing campaigns over the years with them. And some of them work better than others. We used humor, we used education and teaching and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was thinking about it and I'm like, wow, this is a fairly new format audio. And it was at the very beginning when brands were just starting to think about using podcasting for brands. And I suggested to them, I said, I think this is an opportunity for us to get in the space and do a show that is not two talking heads, which they wanted, actually. They were like, oh, let our customers talk to us on a show. And I'm like, I don't think so. We'll bring our experts from our analyst staff and they'll talk about stuff. Exactly. And I'm like, no, we need something that's super entertaining. And so we created this show called Hackable. And the format of the show is hacks in pop culture. So think CSI Cyber at the time and Black Mirror and Mr. Robot, right? We took those hacks, we recreated them in audio format. And then we put them to the test with a white hat hacker and then gave the audience, okay, should you be nervous about this or not? And tips and tricks to keep you safe. The show went gangbusters. Like it is the most successful piece of content marketing I had ever done. They had ever done. And it was just an amazing success story. But we went big. Like we went really big. Like we went in with like high quality production. We invested in the production. We invested in the storytelling. We invested in the marketing to get the right people to find the show. And it became a show that was in the top 1% of all podcasts ever produced on the planet. So my point is, I feel like sometimes you're like, oh, let's dabble in podcasting. Let's, you know, like, or we just dip our toe in, but you're not really going to know. You might not really know if that's an effective medium for you or not, unless you really like do it right and kind of go big. I don't lean into the podcast thing as much on this show, but because you're saying that I can also say that what we know at content allies is that B2B podcasting is a totally different animal than what you just said. So we don't even do anything in B2C type of work like you just described. And it's so different the way you use this channel, that thing that you just described B2B companies, big brands come to us all the time and say, we want to do that. And we go, that's cool but it's not going to work at all for what you're talking about. And in fact, we've been able to link it to ABM strategy a lot better for B2B. And in fact, you know, you get a couple hundred listens an episode for a B2B podcast. And that's awesome for organic performance where it's like people come in and they go, I want to be huge. I want to be on the Apple charts. And there's all this stuff like that's great for when you're McAfee and you need a hundred million people to install your thing and care 
and keep paying their subscription so different than, no, I just actually want to sell, I don't know, I'm AWS and I want the 500 CTOs who can spend a billion dollars. Like such a different world. And I think that speaks to like the way you use a channel. It's still the same thing. Yeah, we should have good audio production. We should have all this stuff. It's the same workflow. You could plug and play that. It's not the same strategy. People miss that a lot. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Seen it, or I can at least relate to it 100% with our client base too. <laughs> Here you are, a B2B CEO, and essentially, like you're embracing the channel. And so, you've got it from a, a PR standpoint, which is important. It's just like Carolyn and her company exist at all and have good things to say because maybe one of our listeners is driving home and they go, Oh, that's interesting. Like now I'm aware the response marketing exists when maybe. I wouldn't have known that at all. And and there's this smart team in New Haven, Connecticut, and they want to help us out. <laughs> and I think that's critically important for podcasting in general. Like people are listening in their car, they're listening while they do their chores, they're bored in between their kids' soccer games. And all of them are, are some type of impactful influence on some type of B2B decision-making process. And that's how they're going to consume. And so that track gets a whole lot longer. This is not the same thing as running a commercial or a direct deal. No, exactly. And I think you're absolutely right. It's about using the mediums to the best effect based on what your business goal is. And so like you're saying for me, it's, yeah, we're interested. Well, we have a lot of experience in podcasting, but this is also a way for us to talk to people who might, like you're saying, might not know us, you know? Exactly. Okay. So I'll switch to your accidental entrepreneur story. Cause I think we have probably a lot of people like that. And I would consider myself, I was an active entrepreneur. I just sucked at it until I accidentally figured out that I should be, you know, in the revenue generating type of seat and evolved that way over 20 years ish, just the evolution of your business. And I'm curious to know lessons learned over that period as when you're accidental, I'd say by nature, you don't do everything awesome from the get-go for your own business. You are a practitioner with lots of experience and a passion and knowledge, and you're an SME in a particular area and, oh crap, I need to run a business now. And I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. So as you look back, I'm always curious, lessons learned. I even say, which speed bumps did you hit at hundred miles an hour that you could at least warn the drivers behind you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think my lessons learned are one, surround yourself with people who you can trust and do a great job. We have an amazing team. I just couldn't say enough about our team. They're amazing. And I have a great business partner, David Kleinberg, and the two of us complement each other really well. And he has brought things to the organization that I wouldn't, not that they weren't on my radar screen, but I didn't put the amount of importance on them that I probably should have. And so he's been great for me that way, just in terms of developing culture. Like we're in a people business here, right? And we're selling our own ideas. And so culture is huge. And he really put that on the map for me. And I would say our culture's never been stronger than ever. And so that was massive for me. Two is getting help from the outside too. So one of the things that I had done maybe a few years into me being, you know, owning the agency 
is I became part of Inc. Business Owners Council, which is not in existence anymore. But by being part of that Business Owners Council, I was exposed to other business owners that had similar sizes of businesses to ours. And it helped me so much in one, just feeling like I'm not out there on an island on my own. But two, like there were things about the running the financial side of the business that I didn't fully understand that came to light really quickly for me. And they had suggested certain people to follow and books to read and things like that. And it just became so clear to me, like almost instantaneously. And you know, our business has been profitable since I purchased it back in 2009, but even more after getting some advice. And so while I don't belong to the Inc. Business Owners Council anymore because it went defunct, but I do belong to the 4As. And the 4As is the largest advertising association in the country. And they have a forum called, there's a small forum called the Jade Forum. And there's a group of us that are also similar sized small agency owners that get together semi-annually in person when during COVID it it was virtual. And again, it's just a great way for me to get support and to have a way to confidentially talk about what the challenges and issues with the business are. And I would say if I knew that on day one, it would have been so helpful to me, both about culture and about getting support and outside help and people to help you think through your biggest challenges. I know that I didn't do that early on either. I actually can remember sitting with people who were trying to mentor me and me sharing my 30-year-old brilliance about how they were wrong and subsequently looking back and going, yeah, that cost me a million dollars. But there's this whole, like, we used to call it, I worked in the accelerator space for startups. There's that mentor whiplash type of, everybody has an opinion about what mentors, advisors, consultants that you can pay, coaches, peer groups, so like all the things. And it's not dissimilar to like the choices of of marketing almost. I, I have a million ways that I could go about getting better. How did you filter that? Or how do you think about that now looking back? Well, yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of things that are coming at you and there's a lot of you get on lists and people are still trying to pull me into all these things. You know, I feel like I get 10 emails a day about how we can help you with your B2B demand gen. I'm like, it's crazy. So there's a lot out there. There's a lot of filter through. I think for me, it was about being open, number one, and then meeting the right people at the right time to help guide me to the choices that I was making. And then also, I think going back to David, my business partner, that has also been super helpful in terms of just being able to say, hey, this is the opportunity. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think to help think through? Is this the right a step for us? Is this the right thing for us to do? Listen, everyone's journey is unique and individual. And I think what works for me and us is certainly different than other people, even in the Jade Forum. But it's the fact that you've got this group to be able to share and bounce off in either sometimes validate or sway you to maybe not do something. So I think it's just having a really good support system around you and having just the strongest team you possibly can build to do the things like you're saying, I am a practitioner as well as running the business. And so you've probably heard this a million times. It's like, how much time do you spend working in the business versus on the business? And it's exactly. And you get sucked into the business a whole lot when you're a practitioner But when you start building your team and really having 
just extraordinary people that are executing day in and day out, it's it becomes amazing and it becomes much easier for you to back out of the day-to-day stuff. I can literally remember the first time I ever had the feeling of, I don't know, it's Thursday afternoon and somebody else is doing the work for my clients that works for me. And I actually don't have to do anything right now. And years that it took to get there. And I I can literally remember that moment of, holy crap, somebody's working and I'm not. And things are happening. And and that's just so liberating. Yeah. My friend Tom went to Italy for a whole month. He's, I think the agency's going to fall apart. And you know what? It didn't. It actually ran perfectly. They got more clients. It was like, it's, oh my gosh, I can actually do this. Yeah. Years later, it's nice to... I think I'm on startup 14 now and some were good. uh, Some were horrendous. And finally, I think it's like when you get to that, oh, wow, something actually worked it. You don't want it to be surprising, but I I think that's a normal part of that. That journey is that the collective nature of all the things I learned over time not to do. I have enough examples from my own ineptitude to come out on the other side. Well, in talking to that a little bit, and I heard you on a prior episode talking about opportunities that come to you, clients come to you and they're like, oh, we need help with this and this. And you just know in your gut, this isn't going to work, but you take it. And like when we were small, we would take it anyway, you know? And it's like, how many times you have to learn that? I would, that's another piece of great advice. If the red flags are up, trust your gut and like stay away. But it's hard to walk, you know, opportunities when you're starving. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is really hard. It's basically like, you know, here's this table full of food. I know eating it is going to be a horrible idea and we're going to pay dearly, but I'm really hungry and I want to live to fight another day. And getting to that discipline of being able to walk from a bad, an opportunity that just simply doesn't fit. Remember that there are in that same 95.5, I bet there are 95 businesses that are not a fit, maybe 99 for every one. And if you're actually branded and niching properly, you can come to the faith that, listen, like most of the people that even come to the door here, virtual door now, are wrong and we can't help them and we shouldn't try. But if we stay disciplined and do the work, the right people ultimately will become a tremendous assets to the business. That's right. We feel like that a hundred percent. Yeah, totally. It's in it and it is hard. The first time you turn away business that you know you could do, but you know you shouldn't do. And it happens indefinitely. I also advise, I don't know if you've seen this, you know, a lot of clients will bring you weird stuff that you could maybe expand into doing and you should have a strategic analysis process. Maybe this is a thing, a service line, a package, uh, something that we should add. And do you have an evaluation process on how your own business offerings should evolve? Yeah, I think we're super interested in when clients are looking for services that are tangential to what we're doing. So we've got the core capability. And sometimes to start, we'll partner with someone that has that capability tangential to us. And then we learn it and we can bring it in-house. That happens sometimes too. There is an evaluation process. And is this strategically the right move for us to take it on or not? And what's the plan in terms of how we're going to get it done? Yes, it happens quite a bit. There's certain things that we just say, you know what, we're never going to do that. It's just not, 
it's not in our wheelhouse. It's not something we want to do. It's not something we enjoy doing. And so we're going to keep it at having a partner do it or refer our clients out to someone else. Yeah. And some of the subtext on that is often, yeah, we actually tried that once and it was horrible. Let's not do that again. We don't do that. And we have a because, but we're not going to tell you why. And Yeah, exactly. But I love that track of the looking for things that are tangential. And, and a lot of times I found that particularly in a B2B services context, it might make sense to vertically integrate certain things that are not necessarily core competency, but they really grease the rails for getting the stuff that, that you actually want. And I wouldn't say it in a loss leader context, but it is that kind of stuff like, Hey, listen, if we actually do that thing too, it's going to expose the data or it's going to speed something else. And that's valuable to us. Like marketing agencies that sometimes just go, all right, listen, we got to build a CRM practice because we can't get the data that we need to see if our performance marketing is working. Yeah. And you listen, I was just talking, I just had a workshop yesterday with a client, a B2B client, and they've done a few acquisitions. And what they told me about their acquisition strategy is that we're not going to, we're not interested in an acquisition if it doesn't provide value to our customer. And I think very similar to what you were just talking about, do we acquire see, or build a, a CRM practice? If it adds value to you and ultimately to your customer, it makes sense, right? And so if it doesn't, it gets cut off. And I just thought that comment was really brilliant and indicative of how smart that they've been in terms of what they bring into the fold and what they don't. And actually by the, one of their last acquisitions, it actually, their set of offerings has now become more differentiated than what their competitor, any competitor can offer. So it was really smart kind of all the way around. And I think you got to keep thinking about that for yourself too. Right. Do you get into acquisition thinking at all for your, your own business? That is a whole different animal in agency world. And, you know, been in and out and around it. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And so complicated because we're in such a people business and most of the money comes from billing somebody else's time, expertise, et cetera. And what am I acquiring? So I've done the agency buy thing where it's like, oh, we got a customer list and we got a domain name. And turns out that isn't worth anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a very difficult thing, I think, to assess on both sides, whether you're the acquirer or the acquiree. And it, because you're right, it really is about the people and the capability and I think to me, one of the biggest things to consider, and we have gone down the path and looked at some things here and there, I think the bottom line for me is, can this work from a culture perspective? I go back to that. David has done such a great job in building our culture inside of our agency. And if there's not a good fit between the two, I think it becomes very difficult to make it work. And it could potentially affect the billing stream too, right? And I think you have to think through all of that as well. What's your customer list look like? And is this going to be advantageous for them? Or is this going to be a problem for them, you know, in terms of how the two come together? And because you're right, there's no guarantee, really. Most of our clients have 30 day outs, right? You can do an acquisition and then all of a sudden a bunch of clients leave and it's a problem. So I don't know. It's a difficult, I think you're right. It's difficult to evaluate, I feel. And you have to be really, do a lot of, due diligence to figure out if this is the right thing for yourselves. I think we're, you know, constantly kind of have our ears open, but we haven't done anything as of yet and just evaluating to see and when does it make sense? When does it not? I think it could be a good strategy for 
growth if you're at capacity and you're having a hard time hiring people and getting the right people, it could be a great avenue to merge or be acquired. But we haven't found the right. Yeah, it'd be that aqua hire thing is huge if you can retain that talent. Of course, then again, you're talking about talent retention, which is all about culture. And it's like, do I even want to work for this new place that my boss just sold to? And there's so much, there's so much there where you can just see value just evaporate. Yeah. And then become, then what the, does a relationship happen, right? What happens to that relationship now that the values are right? The clients are going to follow the person they like working with, unless the person they like working with is, I'm so excited to now work for this other company instead, because we can do these things. And that belief level, that actual faith needs to be. So you talk about, I loved how you added the internal channel to marketing because who are your brand ambassadors, right? It's just the way people talk about your thing who work there. And when they're talking to other humans doing totally other things, are they proud of the brand that they work for and that it adds meaningful value to customers? Or do they just feel like a, another cog in the machine and they just don't care? You never want to get to the spot where people don't care internally about your own thing. Well, listen, I'm super passionate about this topic of internal marketing because I think it is so overlooked and underutilized. And what I just said about myself, right? It, to me, it is about the entire team and like the culture and people being proud of the organization and things like that. But I think even at a large scale level with some of these huge B2B companies, you want your team to advocate for the brand and to be stewards of the brand. And I can't tell you like how many organizations I've seen where they just don't even think about using the internal, like one, educating them and training them on brand and what the brand is about and what's we're for and why we're excited. We should be excited about the brand and all that, but then also using them as a, a, you know, a channel for let's talk about this new campaign we have running that's coming out and things like that. So let's educate our people about what the hell we even do. Yeah. And we will become more attractive by the way to talent. If you've got this team that is super excited about the brand and what you're doing. I mean, how many people do you meet in your life that are just like, yeah, I'm a corporate drone and I don't really give a shit. And I just, I've worked my nine to five and I just go home and you go, what does that communicate about? Like, they're literally not excited at all. They have no idea how they contribute to anything in the world. And they generally just hate this. And you, that's a huge opportunity. And it's like when your own people think your own branding is bullshit is should be like the in initial litmus test. Yeah. They come up with new things every year and we don't actually do them. And you can smell that when you walk into a, a new company and how stale that environment is. And yeah, I think it's a huge, huge opportunity to make internal brand ambassadors. Like, why are we so obsessed with consumer generated content? And we have 20,000 people that work for us who don't do anything and aren't even allowed. Like, they, like we're going to fire you if you put something about our company on TikTok. Yeah, I think when we did that McAfee hackable program, we convinced the client to do an internal program and we pushed it out to all of the, it was like, I think about 10,000 employees across the globe. And we got such great feedback. They were like, this is amazing. Like they like the quality. I, I can't, you should listen to an episode or two, but I mean, it, it's really like amazing content. They're like, this is the best thing McAfee's ever done. They start talking about it on their social channels. It was like, it was a, a brilliant add on to the, not even add on, it was a brilliant piece to the whole integrated plan that we put together to, to launch that program. And 
like I said, I just think too many companies overlook their own people in one creating brand enthusiasm into having them part of the whole effort to build brand. Right. I mean, talk about paid channel, like you're already paying for a very, very large street team that you should probably get on board with what you're doing. And that goes to the whole like segmentation of marketing into a silo and salespeople and marketing people that like each other and finance doesn't talk to anybody. And we have meaningful reasons that like-minded people who work on similar things should be aligned together. But it's a classic problem of, of business. The larger we get, the more disconnected we get. And I can, in fact, wind up being, a I don't know, an FP&A analyst at company X and have absolutely no idea what that company does. If asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, let me shift to, okay, we've got a, that was a big look at all the things that we experienced from the brand side and from the marketing side and the small agency side is, can you encapsulate that or think about the learnings that, that you have looking forward for the other B2B leaders in the audience, right? Like what must be on their radar that you're aware of and maybe they aren't? Well, I mean, I feel like I talked about this already, but I do think that the pendulum is going to continue to swing towards brand and building brand. And so I see that really clearly. I don't know that everyone else does, but for me, it's investing in brand pays off big time. And if everyone can have a little patience and belief that it'll happen, I feel like it's just going to continue to, and I also feel like there's just so many people talking about it, that it started, I feel like it's getting traction. I just, I see the world moving down that path. I see, I think the, I don't know, this is necessarily lesson learned, but it's definitely something that's coming like a freight train with chat GPT and generative AI is how do we use it? I don't think it's a replacement, by the way. I think it's a tool to use to help us do things maybe faster early on and then refine with human touch. And so I think I had a client call me the other day and they're like, oh, people are asking us, like, how do, can we use chat GPT to create like a white paper or whatever? And I'm like, you should use it to maybe get some ideas, but it's not what you can't rely on that to write a, a white paper, especially when the it's the database isn't even current. It's two years behind, I think is what the, what, it, what I know about anyway. So it, there's all that kind of stuff is, is coming in marketing. And I think the, people who are going to win are the ones that utilize the tools in the right way, because I very much see them as tools. And I think the other thing, and maybe this is obvious, is that in marketing, especially in B2B marketing, sustainability is, I think, here to stay. And it's becoming very pervasive, not only in terms of what the company standpoint is, but in terms of in, in communications to talent and acquiring talent, it's a big thing. Again, I was talking to a client yesterday and they were saying, we have team members who or prospective team members in Europe who are coming to interviews and saying, what is your, you know, your score on a certain sustainability metric? And if it doesn't meet a th certain threshold, they're not interested in working for them. And so it's really just an amazing kind of shift that is happening. And with the regulations and stuff that are coming into play, I just don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, tremendous. Gosh, we're recording this on the cusp of brands getting absolutely decimated for DEI. And I would be making calls to people like you and be like, how in the hell do I navigate this? Because the damaging, 
But man, there's just going to be this detailed sort of strategic look at what all matters here or for any brand. And, and I think that while that happens more and more would be to see the megasphere, small companies need to, to think about that too. Like you talk about culture and brand are, are very much integrated and, and are people proud to work at your place and will they help to advance the values and, and all those things. And it's so easy to skip or run away from this idea of what the hell are our core values and can we actually, can everybody here articulate that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's one of the things that we do as for ourselves, but also for every single one of our clients. It's one of the first things we talk about is core values and core they beliefs. They must just be like, roll their eyes, right? Like we've been through like, can I give you the 16 <laughs> different PowerPoints that we have about this topic? Granted, none of them are the same, but you know, yeah, that initial work. Well, is so I I'm a, it's so important. And I feel, listen, as marketers, we can't develop good brand campaigns or good efforts if we don't understand who you are at your core. Right, yeah. Or how to respond to something that is, like you're saying, like they're getting backlash from DE&I or from greenwashing. Like, how do you respond if you don't know what your core values right, are? Right, right. Are we yeah. going to just stand up and go, no, this is real and we don't care about that segment of people being angry at us? Or maybe they do care and go, listen, we're Switzerland. And true, true, true. And true to yeah, who you are. You know, it's like, yeah. I think it might be okay for some brands to go, look, we don't care about that. And we know that some people care and it's cool, but this is what we're good at. And we're not going to wade into that. Yeah. Well, it's better. It's better to be true to who you are and authentic about it versus trying to, to pull the wool over right. someone. It's not going to work. Right. right. I certainly don't want to whipsaw back and forth between like yeah, no. half-assed answers. And this is the classic PR lesson in crisis management that we seem to all forgotten maybe because like, marketing is just out there on every channel. Now, I'm not sure, but it's very expensive when you do it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yes. You can ruin your whole brand by the by misstepping. Well, Carolyn, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much Likewise. for engaging. For anybody that wants to continue with you or is interested in what y'all are doing, what are the best channels to reach you and your company? Yeah, so our website is definitely the best, best place to go check us out. It's response.agency. And you can certainly look me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on the channel. So if you want to engage with me at all, a good place to go. Or if you want to reach me versus via email, I'm always checking that too. It's carolyn at response.agency. Fantastic. Well, thanks for hanging out. And we look forward to getting your message out there. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.